I'm Franny Matthews, President and CEO of Colorado Technology Association, and you're listening to Colorado Voices on Tech, a podcast dedicated to getting to know the leaders and innovators driving advancement in our community through technology. Thank you to our friends at Excel Energy, whose support has made it possible for us to host this podcast. On today's episode, I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation with Governor Bill Ritter. He was elected governor of our state in 2006, and during his four-year term, Governor Ritter established Colorado as the national and, quite frankly, an international leader in clean energy by building a new energy economy. After leaving the governor's office, he founded the Center for a New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. It was a fascinating conversation. He spoke a lot about the importance of global policy on climate change and specifically what Colorado's role in clean energy is. I hope you enjoy the conversation and stay to the end so you can hear the rapid fire question and find out what Governor Ritter's favorite Colorado hike is. Welcome, Governor Ritter. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we're talking to you about clean energy. My first question is, where did your passion for clean energy come from? First of all, Franny, let me say thank you for allowing me to be a part of this. Really do appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. So, um, so thanks for that. My passion for clean energy, I think, you know, it'd be fair to say that um, I was the district attorney of Denver for the 12 years prior to being governor. Actually, there was a two-year gap between when I left office as DA when I became governor. And I made a decision to run for governor, and I really looked around at the things that Colorado could be doing, where we had some real promise of building a different kind of economy, and particularly a different kind of clean energy economy. And um, and, and as I learned more about it, I realized how just important it was to the people of Colorado and to the rest of the country that Colorado demonstrate what it could do to lead this conversation. Now, there are other states that have done a lot, and some have done better than we have in some arenas, but we've done a great deal about that. And I think my passion comes from being a Coloradan who is A, proud to be a Coloradan, but also just seeing immense possibility to solve one of the biggest challenges we have, not just as a state or a nation, but as a globe. And, and Colorado can play a role in that. So I am uh, passionate for those reasons. I'd say, finally, since leaving office, I've had three grandkids, two granddaughters and a grandson. And, you know, uh, when my grandkids are in their 80s, it's going to be in the 2090s. And I don't think we know what kind of a world we live in unless we take much better care of it than we have. And, and clean energy is a part of that. So my passion also flows from the fact that I care a great deal about my kids, my grandkids and the world that they're going to live in. I feel the same way. I just welcomed in. I have a 10-week-old uh, oh, grandson, and I feel the same way. Yep. It's a, This is a long game. It is. Uh, you, you talk in your book, Powering Forward, What Everyone Should Know About America's Clean Energy Revolution, that climate change is one of history's biggest challenges for peace, prosperity, and security in the United States. Can you ex expand on that a bit? Yes, and, and I would say not just the United States, but around the globe. Uh, I had the opportunity 
go to Paris and speak at uh, the COP, the Conference of Parties, they call it COP. And so it was the one where we actually cut the deal with China and India and 186 other countries to limit our emissions and to have real verifiable goals along the way. And it was just dramatic to look at the way the world had come together on that. And, and so the deal is this, <laughs> if we don't address climate change, the impact, first of all, is gonna be felt by a lot of people who didn't create the problem. And that's its own justice problem. You know, There are people who have little or no carbon footprint who will live in areas that will be dramatically changed and they'll become what we refer to as climate refugees. So instead of prospering, they'll see their well-being head in a negative direction. United States, you know, that may take longer. It may be different for some people. We're a pretty prosperous country already, but climate change will absolutely impact people. And, and we've seen all these devastating sort of natural events. If you think of a wildfire as a natural event, but look at the devastating impacts and results, different than you know even a decade ago when I was governor. It's true of wildfires, it's true of flooding, it's true of a variety of different things, the kind of heat that they're experiencing in places like Arizona. Uh, that's just gonna make that state almost uninhabitable and that's the future unless we understand what we need to do to address it. So uh, secure is also a part of that security because I think we become a very fragile world if in fact we don't address climate change. I think there's a lot of places around the world where they're already in fragile states and they could go to a failed state and failed states are not good for the security of any country in the world and certainly not for the United States of America. So it's, it is about prosperity, it is about security, but it's not just about the United States, it's about the globe. Well, it certainly makes me feel better that you've just said that there's real effort being made on a global uh, basis, because that's one of the big problems with this is that it's a long-term issue and it ha everybody has to be in it together. So, um, you know, you, you are a founder of, or the founder of the Center for the New Energy Economy at CSU. What what did you see needed to go further on this to say this is the solution? Let's let's start the center. Yeah, it was really interesting, Franny, because um, I'm a lawyer, um, have a law license, and had some overtures from law firms, national law firms, to be part of a energy practice. And I also got an invitation from then the president of CSU Fort Collins. Tony Frank, who basically said, do you have any interest in coming to Colorado State University and you know, doing something that lines up with what you've done as governor? As I thought about that, you know, there are a lot of centers around the country, a lot of centers in academia, but the place that I felt was important to work at was to work with states, with governors, with legislators on clean energy. At that point, I had been governor for four years and you know, there had been no real national policy on energy that had been passed in that four-year period. We do a little bit with taxes and tax credits to manage energy policy, but that's kind of how we do it. And 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 yet states around the country were doing really significant things that impacted both their energy portfolios, but also their emissions and their emissions cuts. Um, I signed 57 different bills into law while I was governor. And that's in one state and you know, in the Congress did you know, nothing. 
the same time. So I thought, you know, what if we could work just with states, work with the stakeholders inside of states, not just governors, but with legislators. And now we run a clean energy legislator academy. We make sure it's with Republicans and Democrats. So it's bipartisan. And quite frankly, Franny, uh, I think, you know, we do a pretty good job of helping both sides of the aisle think about how to talk to each other, how to reduce sort of conflict around clean energy policy, conflict around climate policy. And uh, we've seen some real results from that Legislators Academy, but also results from the work we've been able to do with governors, with utilities, with utility commissions at the state level. That's that is really uh, heartwarming to hear. Uh, you know, we we've had some uh, recent discussions on policy around sustainability. And one of the questions I have for you is there seems to be it's a character stick, right, or a combination. Where do you see incentives playing and where do you see just regulation on we need to do this? Yeah, I, I don't think that's an either or. You know, when I mentioned the tax code at the federal level, we have uh, basically done that for our entire energy supply. And so people say, well, we, you know, support um, solar, we support wind through tax credits. We do that as well for fossil fuels, for oil. We did it for coal. We do it for oil and gas. There's a variety of different kinds of ways we do that using the tax system. And I think it's important to um, try and use incentives like tax credits to get a technology to a place where it has a certain market share. But what's really interesting is then the market can take over. You know, when I uh, became governor of Colorado, there were only 200 megawatts of wind in the entire state. And now we're, I think, approaching something like 5,500. Um, and, you know, that was, what, 15 years ago. So it really is significant when a, a market share begins to develop and the economies of scale kick in, then you need to do this. But where where we need to have things that are mandated, I think, are, are like places where emissions are, you know, are dangerous, where are dangerous levels. And in our case, I think there's a straight line between greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. So it's really important to have a mandated top and, and say, this is it. This is where we're going to, you know, cap this and we're going to go down from there. We're going to reduce our emissions and even prescribe how we're going to do that. I think it's also important where toxicity is concerned. So, you know, if there are environmental hazards to the way people pollute that might not impact greenhouse gases or might not impact or make climate change worse, there's still a real reason from a public health perspective for us to have limits on that. And that, you know, the whole Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, both were passed in Republican administrations in the late 1960s, early 1970s. I think actually they were both 1970, but it was in the Nixon administration. And, you know, it was really about us getting a handle on toxicity in our water and our air. You have to have limits on that. And you have to, over time, understand the public health challenges if you don't. So that's where I think the stick has to be deployed if there's not a good incentive to do so. Right, right. You know, we uh, we had Beth Comstock, who was the uh, chief innovation officer for GE, speak okay. at our Women in Tech conference a couple of years ago. And she talked a lot about, you know, just the morphing of General Electric in this uh, in this environment. I mean, we used to have rivers that were caught on fire. 
Yeah. I mean, it was kind of a big deal. Yeah. And then the same companies that may have been causing issues are now innovating. And so can you talk a little bit about what you think the business community, what that role is of the business community and specifically tech is to help solve some of these problems? Well, let's let's talk about the business community first. I, I think, you know, we are past the point of arguing about whether climate change is real. If if somebody is running a business and they still think that climate change isn't real, uh, I don't know how their business will look in 10 years uh, because they are not recognizing the sorts of threats that lay ahead of them with climate change. And so the business community needs to do what they can do to get on board. They're a big part of you know, how we think about the emissions that need to be reduced. There are people inside of the business or companies inside of the business community that we kind of, we call them the harder to uh, reduce emissions technology. So think of steel and cement and, you know, things uh, on that nature, uh, industrialized processes that require petrochemical manufacturing. It's, it's, it's really important that the entire business community sort of come together. And I say that because at once upon a time, the United States Chamber of Commerce was not a willing partner in efforts around, you know, the transition to clean energy and efforts around um, emissions reduction because of the harm being caused to the environment. And so now I think they need to speak with one voice and they need to actually, because they have such power inside the halls of Congress and inside the state capitals, they need to speak with one voice to policymakers who appear not to be able to, you know, get through a session without a bunch of deniers impacting our ability to pass national energy policy. We should be passing national energy policy. It is clean energy policy. And to date, I think it's it's fair to say the Obama administration, or the, I'm sorry, the Biden administration is very hawkish about climate and climate change. They want to work very hard on it. And they've not been able to pass significant bipartisan legislation. They did pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but that was only part of the answer. The Build Back Better bill would have had much more in it, many more things that could have uh, transitioned. The business community needs to be on board that transition, and they need to be telling their elected leaders that if they're not on board, they're not going to support them anymore. Well, that's interesting. I um, The other thing that I would say for the business community it's really hard to get talent. And if yeah. you're not, if you're not, if you don't have a sustainability policy, it's very hard to attract a lot of talent. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, I heard that yesterday from a utility CEO. No, I'm sorry, it's an oil and gas CEO. Um, I was having dinner last night with a group of people, including some CEOs from oil and gas. And they said that as they hire new people into the workforce, they want to ensure that as an oil and gas company, they're doing their business in the most sustainable possible way, that they are thinking about sustainability, that they're thinking about environmental actions. And so, you know, there are people that are totally opposed to extracting any further fossil fuels, but quite frankly, we need it now. We're not going to, you know, we cannot fall off the fossil fuel cliff, but for young people in the workforce, and I don't care, I guess, what age you are, to demand that if we're going to do it, we do it in the way that's most environmentally sound and the most sustainable going forward. That's, you know, that's going to be an impact on the business world. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, in tech, we're seeing that all over the place that if, uh, you know, whether it's diversity, equity, 
be an inclusion or sustainability or any other, you know, if they if the purpose is not integrated into uh, the organization, we see a lot of talent just saying, I'm not interested. So uh, kind of putting you yourself. Did, you actually did ask me about, uh, you said the business community, but you also said and technology. And let me just say, uh, fascinating that we're in Colorado because in Colorado, we have some of the leaders in the country where emissions reduction are concerned in the power sector. So they've got set these goals like 80 to 85%. Excel is actually going to reduce their emissions from their 2005 level by 85% by 2030. They're the leader in the country on that. Tri-State, which provides power to uh, the co-ops, has a similar goal among independent power producers. They are a leader in the country on that. And they it comes as a surprise to people that for years followed Tri-State and thought that they weren't a clean energy company, but they really are now. So What's interesting about 85% is we don't know how to go to the next 15%. We have not yet figured out how to get to zero, which is what we need to do, Franny. By 2040, 2045, 2050, the power sector needs to get to zero emissions. And so technology is going to actually be the answer. Hopefully, there will be innovations that can come out of Colorado. We have these beautiful research universities. I'm at one of them, Colorado State University. But we also have... Um, uh, host of national labs that work very hard on this problem. We have probably the premier renewable energy laboratory in the world in Golden, Colorado at NREL. And I think the mix of academia, the, the national lab system and the private sector, if we can work together and try and innovate our way to zero, that's going to be a really important problem for tech to solve. And, and it will be technology I think perhaps even a technology we don't presently understand or aren't working on, it's going to solve it. Well, and having business accept it, not putting up fences to keep those innovations coming through and being utilized. Right. That I, I'm actually very excited about it. Um, I think that uh, we do have momentum. Let's, let's hope we do. Um, I, I want to ask one question on what do you think is the biggest mover? Uh, that we can do today, not policy related, just the the biggest thing that we could do, maybe find the other 15%, I don't know. Well, what's interesting is we're asking the power sector to cut its emissions more rapidly than the transportation sector, the built environment, the industrial sector, the ag sector. We're giving them some leeway because the power sector is on its way. And so, you know, renewable power, things like wind, solar, batteries, um, we're going to build out a massive amount of that. I would have said that was the big mover 10 years ago. Our transportation emissions have now eclipsed our power sector emissions. So the most important thing for us to do is think about how we reduce our emissions in the transportation sector. And so for me, I'm just gonna tell you, I think it's the electric vehicle. And I think that it's the electric vehicle is the big mover and needs to be because the transportation sector provides so many emissions that need to be cut in order for our, us to get our arms around this greenhouse gas reduction. So there may be some, again, other technology that's not the electric vehicle, uh, not a battery operated electric vehicle. It may be you know, a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle or something of that nature. And it may be different depending on whether it's a light duty, medium duty or heavy duty automobiles. But for the technology that we have presently, uh, my sense is the biggest thing that we can do as a state and as a country is transition as quickly as possible out of the internal combustion engine into another, uh, some other type of carbon-free transportation. And that would include, in my mind, 
a massive build out of the electric vehicle industry. Well, that's cool. That's my next vehicle. I'm, that, <laughs> I'm definitely going that direction. So Governor Ritter, thank you so much for spending time with us. I have uh, a few rapid fire questions that I'm going to give you just to uh, have a little fun. So I'm going to ask you questions really quickly and you give me your quick answer. Uh, favorite memory of your time as governor? My favorite memory. I, I saw these questions before. Now I'm trying to remember what my favorite memory it might be that my wife led a conga line dance at the White House after we'd had dinner with Michelle and Barack Obama. I love it. What's your favorite hike in Colorado? Going down the Chucker Trail toward the Gunnison River, because once you get to the bottom, you get on a boat and you go down the Gunnison River and fish for three days. I'm more love of a it. fisherman than I am a hiker. I love it. I love it. Uh, favorite gadget or tech tool? Oh, man, I have my phone uh, now reads my solar display uh, at our cabin in the mountains, so I know exactly how much electricity I'm using at the house. I know how much solar I'm producing and what I'm putting onto the grid to net meter. I love it. Well, that is probably your favorite app as well. well that is my favorite app. My favorite app. <laughs> um, Best have a book faucet. you've read. Oh, I'm have sorry. A here at my office at CSU, you tap it and it turns on and you tap it and it turns back off. It's, it's incredible to me. I love it. I have a gadget uh, that I can, uh, when we're out of town, so we don't leave lights on, we'll We'll change the lights and I act like I'm walking through the, the house and what I would do if I was there. So anyway, <laughs> best book that you've read in the last year? Uh, 4,000 weeks. Okay. And uh, how do you stay up to date on tech trends? You know, I read um, and, and at CSU, I have a fairly robust inbox from my email. There's a lot about the energy sector that involves technology trends. So I am uh, a voracious reader of things that impacted. I'm also uh, part-time with a venture capital group and that it's called Blackhorn uh, Venture Capital. Um, I'm only 60% time at CSU and so I do some other things. And actually they help me a lot stay up with the latest technologies, particularly in the built environment, the energy systems and transportation systems. That's great. And my fa my last question is, what's your favorite new podcast? Uh, yours. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Thank you, Franny. All right. Thank you very much, Governor Ritter. Thanks. Take care. And that's our episode. Thank you for listening to Colorado Voices on Tech. And thanks again to our sponsor, Excel Energy, for making this possible. If you enjoyed it, please make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. 